0: A simple look from person to person is often much more than a look. A smile, a frown, a narrowing of the eyes, a furrowing of the brow can speak volumes. We are extraordinarily good at giving and receiving and reading looks. Husbands and wives, become masters of silent communication. I know my wife of 29 years, Audie, I know when her look means it's time to go. I know when just the slightest raise of eyebrows are saying, you're treading on thin ice, mister. It's gotten so I can pick her up with my peripheral vision. I see the look on her face when I can't even see her face. On Sunday mornings when... I, I, I hope I'm not alone in this. The The Sunday morning fashion show when... I'm asked, does this dress look good? Does this outfit make me look fat? (laughs) Danger. These are dangerous times in a married man's life and he needs to have his wits about him. And I found that verbal communication at this point is a minefield. But Even without talking, she looks at my face and I see now the value of a true poker face. And I've never mastered this, but she can read simply from the way I glance away or glance at her. What I'm thinking, and probably the most dangerous question about facial expressions that I'm ever asked, especially by the same good woman, is what was that look supposed to mean? All this to say that a simple look can initiate a significant event. Acts chapter 3 tells us of an outstanding miracle in the history of this, at that time, newborn church. Christ had ascended. The Holy Spirit had so recently come at Pentecost. And the church was growing. The fledgling church. And with That growth was coming new spiritual discipline. Chapter 2 tells us they were devoted to the teaching of the apostles and to fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayer. And now we find Peter and John heading to prayer at the temple and passing the gate They notice a beggar, and chapter 4 tells us he was over 40 years old, who had been crippled from birth. Apparently this was his post. He was at this post each day. Beggars of the world are the wounded, the broken, the marginalized who often collect anywhere that they might come in contact with people of means, especially those who are likely to feel pity or responsibility enough to give alms. In the third world, passing them every day, every day, every day, even caring people, can become hardened to the constant cries for help and overwhelmed with the inability to effect real change. On the corner of Kusavena Strat and Jerry Strat in the city of Paramaribo, Suriname, there is a real gathering place for beggars. A mosque and several churches are nearby. It's a two to three lane crossroad depending on the traffic. And it's one of the busiest intersections in town. It has a very long traffic light. And if you stop near the light, you are immediately confronted with beggars who come off the street corners and ask. Usually the hands are out, and if you roll it down your window, you may hear stories or other things. Some are obviously broken people who are in dire need. There is a man who sits on a small square cart, with little caster wheels on it. He has no legs. His legs are gone almost to the hip. And each day he's there, he pushes himself out into the street and traffic using his arms and his hands and comes to the window and and you can see his hand come up. You know, and I, I, I feel broken when I see that man in those calloused hands Coming up and and I, I want to give him we look for the every bit of loose change we can find. Some people are not so easy to sort out. Crying Man, for instance. One day I was driving Kara and her friend sung me in our pickup truck in Paramaribo, and we stopped at this corner and On this particular day, we were confronted for the first time with crying man. He peered at my window, eyes tightly closed, mouth wide open, crying in the greatest of anguish. Truly, he was experiencing the sufferings of Job. Crying full volume, I could hear him through the window, pouring out all of his grief in an agony of tears. And he just stood there crying and he looked in the front window and he looked in the side window at the girls and and everybody said, oh, this man's heart is broken. I was busy hunting for whatever loose change we could find when the lights that were in the opposite lane changed to red and the traffic slowed down. This was a cue for crying man at least, to cease the tears. His face went completely impassive. He scurried over to the side, stood at the corner, and the last vision that I had of him was standing there chatting amiably with another of the panhandlers. If there was an Oscar given for crying men, This man would win, hands down. It was a heart-wrenching performance. And we never guessed that it was an act until the light changed. I did observe him many times after that. He was good at crying. How can you help even when you're not sure who to help? And as Peter and John approached the temple... They were undoubtedly passing other beggars. And this man addressed him, asking for money. But they both suddenly seemed to see him. They looked at him. We don't have a tremendous backstory on this man. We have no big discussion of his faith, no history other than his status as crippled from birth. No real ongoing story after this event. It seems enough that he was recognizable to everyone as the man from the gate. And for some reason, known only to Peter and John and the Holy Spirit, they focused for one fantastic moment on him. Luke says they looked straight at him. Look at us, they said. He assumed he was going to get some money. And so the first words out of Peter's mouth were undoubtedly a disappointment. Silver or gold, I do not have. But what I have, I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ, rise up and walk. And in that instant, he was healed. He took Peter's hand. His ankles were strengthened. He got up and began to walk. He went into the temple with them, jumping and walking and praising God. You know the song. There was no learning curve here. There was no physical therapy. There was no sense of adjusting to the new balance of standing on two legs. And everyone who saw him was amazed. They they, they recognized him as the crippled beggar from the gate. What a tremendous moment. What a fantastic event. And it was an unmistakable, undeniable, 100% bona fide miracle of healing in Jesus' name. And it is of the greatest significance that Peter and John give all the credit for the miracle to the power of the name of Jesus. This miracle is a great event in the history of the church. It's the first since Christ's ascension and an obvious sign of the continuation of his healing ministry now coming through his disciples and through the church. It's an initial catalyst to the spread of the gospel as Luke records from Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria to all the uttermost parts of the earth. And it is undoubtedly the defining moment in this man's life. This sermon arises out of a couple of questions that we wrestled with in our small group last semester as we were studying Acts chapter 3. Just a couple questions that came up. First of all, what prompted this look from Peter and John? Where did, it come, where, where, where did that come from? They had passed by these beggars every day. Peter and John had had the deepest of relationships with Jesus, and they still had. And now they were filled with the Holy Spirit. They were busy with the daily pursuit of the work of Jesus Christ, the church. And they were still growing in their ongoing relationship with Him. They were primed, they were ready, they were listening. They were waiting for his prompting. And when they did feel his leadership, they recognized it and were ready to obey. There was no thought of failure. And it was a risky thing to do. What prompted this look from Peter and John? The answer that we came up with in our small group, it was the Holy Spirit working in them. It was the Holy Spirit who chose this moment for a miracle and this man as a recipient for purposes known completely only to God. The second question, and perhaps the more difficult question that we wrestled with, was this. What about now? What about me? What about miracles today? And though I realize that this discussion can go in many different directions at this point, this much I do know. I claim a relationship with the same Jesus Christ. I claim to be filled with the same Holy Spirit. I believe God has already done a miracle of grace and forgiveness in my own salvation, my own regeneration. I have been born again. I hope that's your claim too. I believe, this is where I may be out on a limb, but I'm out on a limb. I believe that God not only can, but does do. Miracles today. My dad, I was talking to my dad about, about this sermon, and he helped me out by giving me a, a, a an interesting illustration and a story. Maybe you've, you've heard of this before or read this book by a Baptist minister named Don Piper. The book is called 90 Minutes in Heaven. And it tells the story of an extraordinary modern miracle. This minister, Pastor Don Piper, was returning from a retreat in Texas in 1989 when his Ford Escort was struck head on by an 18 wheeler coming from the opposite direction that had shifted over into his lane. Piper's mangled body was hopelessly trapped in the crushed car. Troopers and EMTs on the scene found no pulse. They pronounced him dead. They threw a tarp over him in the car and left him pinned in the wreck to await a coroner. Returning from the same retreat, Baptist minister Don Onorecker was caught in a huge traffic jam that ensued following this wreck. Not knowing the cause, he made his way up front to the accident scene and asked if there was anyone he could pray with. And he was told that the man in the red car was already dead. This is where This is the thing I'm fascinated with. At that moment, Dick distinctly understood God to be prompting him to go and pray for the man in the wreck. And for him, it was a strange and somewhat confusing request. But he was aware enough of the Holy Spirit's prompting in his life and awake enough to it that he made his way to the car pulled up the tarp, crawled into the the wrecked hatchback. It was the only way that he could actually get into the car and began to pray for the dead man. As he prayed, he began to sing, What a friend we have in Jesus. And as he sang, he noticed that someone else was singing with him. It was almost 90 minutes since this man had been pronounced dead, and things were not progressing because he was known to be dead. And suddenly he was singing What a Friend We Have in Jesus with the man who was in the car with him, his fellow pastor. Notifying the authorities, which was a job because no one believed on a record that the man in the car was singing. The EMTs finally, when on a wrecker, threatened to lay down in front of the last ambulance at the scene that was ready to leave, made one last trip to the wrecked car and found that indeed the man was singing. Eventually, Piper was extracted, and though badly mauled in the wreck, he has Recovered and his story is amazing. I'm fascinated by the fact, I'm captivated by the fact that Dick Onrecker was open enough to the prompting of the Holy Spirit and obedient enough to crawl into that wreck to pray for a dead man. Chances are, things in my life may never be so dramatic. But what we asked in our small group was, what if the Holy Spirit ever prompted me to say something or to do something out of the ordinary? Would I recognize the Holy Spirit's prompting? Is my relationship with Jesus deep enough to know his voice when he speaks to me? Would I obey? Am I ready to give someone the look that Peter and John gave? These are questions that I want desperately to answer yes to. I hope you do too. Let's pray. Father move us off our status quo and open us in new ways each day to a deeper relationship with you and father we pray that you would use us as instruments of your will and of your kingdom and of your glory Help us to be obedient. Help us to be listening. Help us to be open. In Jesus' name, amen.